Hi, my name is Mike Dillard, and this is Self Made Man, the podcast for those who want to leave their mark on the world and create a legacy of honor, integrity, and achievement in every aspect of your life. I'm glad you're here, and once again, it is time to forge your destiny. Wow, guys, today you are in for an incredible treat. We're joined by my friend and colleague, Ryan Dice, who's one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs you will ever meet. Ryan is the founder of digitalmarketer.com, and today you're going to hear the behind-the-scenes story of how he saved that company from imminent failure and then turned it around into a million-dollar-per-month membership platform. Now, if you've got a monthly membership or recurring revenue business right now, or if you're thinking about starting one, this will be one of the most valuable interviews that you ever hear. You're going to learn the best way to acquire your new members, what kind of offer and guarantee works the best, and how to increase retention rates once someone joins. This is one of the only episodes over the past three years that I've gone back and I've listened to multiple times because there were just so many amazing nuggets of wisdom inside. So absolutely get ready to take some notes. Now, with that being said, I'd like to invite you guys to join us here at selfmademan.com if you have not done so already. If you found this podcast valuable, then imagine what you're missing out on when it comes to the dozens of exclusive video classes you could have access to just minutes from now that will give you the knowledge and the skills you need to take your life and your business to the next level. I can say this with all sincerity that if you're not a member, you're losing money. You're losing money that you could be making instead. You're wasting time looking for answers that are waiting for you on the platform and you're lengthening the amount of time that it's going to take you to reach your goals. So join us today and take one giant leap towards the future that you want to create. With that being said, please help me welcome Ryan Dice. Ryan Dice, welcome to Self-Made Man. It has been too long, brother. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having me. And uh, you know, we need to do this more often even when the recording button isn't being clicked. Because yeah, I miss you. It's good, good, to, good to chat. Yeah, likewise. It's been... Uh... Between work and family, <laughs> time goes just by in the blink of an eye. It's amazing. Yeah. How old are your uh, How old are your little ones now? Let's see. Uh, six, eight, ten, and twelve. Wow, you got quite yeah. the spread there. Yeah, it's it's busy. Nice, nice. Yeah, my uh, my son just turned eight, which is hard to believe. I can't believe he's almost he's freaking almost ten years old now. Yeah, um, goes by quick. My my, not that it's saying much. I mean, you you've been around me enough. My my twelve year old is almost as tall as I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it, it's a trip, man. Well, you've uh, you you've done quite well for yourself. I don't feel like you look like you've aged today in ten years. So <laughs> whatever you're whatever <laughs> my, you're doing is working. My gray hair would disagree with you, but thank you anyway. Uh, yes, yes. Well, you and I have, gosh, known each other for over ten years now. We probably got our start in the digital marketing arena within a year or two of each other back in probably what 2005 when did you get your start you know i made my very first sale online actually in 1999 Um, but it wasn't you know selling anything related to internet marketing or digital marketing that was always kind of this byproduct thing that was on 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 the side so it's kind of it's always difficult to pinpoint exactly you know when did this thing you know, start. I made my first sale online in 1999. I kind of spoke at my first marketing conference in 2003, I think 2002, actually. Uh, you know, I was selling stuff back in the, you know, in the early, early 2000s. And then, but Digital Marketer really wasn't formed until 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. kind of was when Digital Marketer came into existence. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's been, I think like a lot of entrepreneurial journeys, right? It's been a, a series of, of stutter steps and false starts. And uh, that was a stupid idea that kind of brought me here today. So yeah, it's hard to pinpoint that first starting moment. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's amazing. And I want to give some people some context who might not be aware of you and your story. So where are you guys today? What's the size of Digital Marketer? Give us some context. And then I want to rewind the clock and go through how you've built what you've built. Yeah, so digital marketing today is around fifty people in terms of employee size. I don't, I don't like to give exact revenue numbers, but um, I'm a pretty private person. But I can tell you, you know, we're we're in excess of of eight figures in terms of ARR, so mm-hmm. in terms of our annual recurring revenue. So you know, doing well. We're we're profitable. Have been really since the beginning. Had to be because didn't have any outside investment or any anything like that. Digital marketer is one of the companies 
that's kind of in a, in a broader portfolio of companies that that my partners and I own. Digital marketer, I'm, I'm the CEO. That's that's my day job. That's the office that I you know go to Monday through Friday. But it, it's always been the case, and you know this because you've watched it as this kind of thing was was born and, and came into existence. We've always had you know different businesses that we were running, and, and I think that's partly what's given digital marketer an edge over the years is we were doing the stuff you know we were out there in the trenches marketing in a lot of different in a lot of different markets b2b b2c you know information software uh, even some brick and mortar companies so we we've always had a, a lot of different companies you know under our portfolio of you know of brands and really digital marketer has been the beneficiary of all that intellectual property of all those that you know the wisdom and the, and the ideas that's been created in the aggregate by all the smart people that work for all these different companies, and then I kind of get to stand there and you know repeat all the smart things that other people say, and, and uh, for better or worse, take all the credit for it. And so <laughs> that that's kind of give you, I guess, maybe a thirty thousand foot view of you know of where the the company is today and and how digital marketer kind of fits within that. Now, when you say you've got eight figures of annual recurring revenue, what's the primary source of that? Our main subscription product is called Lab, Digital Marketer Lab, and that's yeah, you know, it's a membership program where people get access to premium content. They get access to a community. Um, they get access to weekly calls and things like that that we do. There are three different levels of Lab, anywhere from you know around forty dollars a month up to around three hundred dollars a month. You know the different pricing. It, it has to do with increased levels of access, additional premium content, uh, things like that, and you know we're well in excess of 10,000 members across that platform. So that particular product is very successful. We have another product, a digital marketer called our Certified Partner Program that really is for agencies. So agencies that we certify and we equip with the tools to get more clients and serve those clients. Uh, that's at around, uh, that, that's $995 a month. And then we also have a premium level of digital marketer called HQ that is designed for team training. So this is you know, for larger companies that have larger sales and marketing teams that want to really be able to get kind of customized training for their teams, that's HQ. And, and we did that purposefully. We started with who, you know, who's out there? Who are we serving? Because I know when you and I first got started in this, the only people who were interested in, in learning how to market online were people who wanted to start an online business, right? Yeah. That's changed. Now, every business recognizes that I mean, you know, every business recognizes they need to do marketing. If they're doing marketing, it's probably digital marketing. So they need to get good at this stuff. And so when we looked, you know, yes, we needed to serve marketers and and startup founders and and Lab did a really great job with that. But we recognize that that within our ecosystem, and this is the case, this is true, I guarantee if you're running a business, you have this as well. There are groups within your ecosystem who you are grossly underserving. And in our case, they happen to be the two most valuable groups. The first one being agencies, right? Agencies, we didn't realize this, but um, we do an annual event every year called Traffic and Conversion Summit. Agencies represented approximately 60% of the attendees at that event. Mm. 60% and we had no specific offerings for them. Crazy. So that's when we decided to roll out the Certified Partner Program. And then also as marketing as a whole got bigger, bigger companies began to notice and began to take notice of digital marketer. And next thing you know, there's there's companies like Uber and Etihad Airlines and HarperCollins who are sending you know their teams to our events and and you know people within these organizations are signing up for forty dollar a month subscriptions, right? With you know budgets that are probably <laughs> more than than the entire yeah. I mean, you, know, you think about what's the training budget of some of these companies? It's probably greater than the higher than the entire revenue of most of my companies, and, and yet the only offering that we had for them was a forty dollar offering. So that's why we created HQ for those larger companies to get more of a customized type offering. So, so those are kind of our three core offerings within that. And we do some events and things like, uh, and some other things, but we were very, very, very deliberate about pivoting hard into subscription, right? We really wanted everything to be on some type of a subscription, MRR, ARR, uh, monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue type model, and just get off that old school, you know, launch roller coaster then. Um, I know we were all on back in the day. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about that, right? Because you're, and that was really at the heart of today's conversation that I wanted to get to is the fact that you guys have built the biggest company that I know of out of the grassroots where we all essentially started, right? Writing our eBooks and our products and doing product launches. 
I don't really know of any other peers, if you will, that have started when we did that have really done the same thing. So what was the catalyst for that? And, and how was that possible? Yeah, it was fear uh, is, is the honest answer. Um, I remember uh, I remember when, when the launch, and by the way, I want to make something clear. I'm not knocking the launch model. You know, those of you who are familiar with Jeff Walker and, and the product launch formula and those kind of things, I'm not knocking it. Uh, it's a really great promotional strategy. The issue is we all turned it into a comprehensive business model, which is never what Jeff really intended. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Jeff. I've known him since, frankly, before he even came up with product mm-hmm. launch formulas, since before he bought the domain name. And he was the one saying, guys, this is not a business model. And yet, if the money was so easy, right? Back then, we were in, and it wasn't just in this market. It was in a lot of different markets. There was so much demand for knowledge, for information. Everybody was so open-minded and wanted to learn about new things. And the marketing strategies were so effective. And... So, you know, nobody was inoculated against them yet, right? And so they were just so, they were so powerful, like they're effective anyway. And then when they're deployed on a market that's, you know, hungry and, and they want what you're offering and they're not yet immune, they haven't seen the same things being done again and again and again, which they have today, they were just astoundingly effective. And, and so I remember watching this go, you know, go down in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, and thinking to myself, this is too easy. And I, I have enough you know, respect for hard work. And, and I know that very often, if, if something is really, really, really easy, and, and yet it's, you know, you got people who aren't trying that hard, they're not working that hard, they're frankly not adding that much value to the process. If they're making that much money, there's no way that this can last, right? This is a momentary inefficiency in the marketplace. And really, it just came down to looking around at, at, at people who didn't know what the heck they were doing. It was working for them. And I remember thinking, there's no way this is going to last. Mm. There's, there's just no way this is going to last. And so it was in 2011 when I kind of came to that realization. And I asked myself, okay, what business are we really in? Right? What is the business that, that we are really and truly in today? Because people were calling it a lot of different things. They were calling it internet marketing. They were calling it information marketing. I looked around and I, and I realized, no, this is nothing new. We're in the publishing business. That's the business that we're in. We're publishers. So how do publishers orient themselves? What are the economics around a publishing company? Right? How do publishing companies scale? And, and so I began asking myself some of these questions, and, and it informed a different business model. So the first real pivot that we made was one away from a guru business and one more towards a, a true publishing business. So it stopped being about Ryan Dice and this amazing idea that Ryan Dice had and this amazing discovery that Ryan Dice made and all this amazing stuff that Ryan Dice had done. And it shifted into me pointing to other people and saying, look at this great thing that they're doing and publishing them and paying them a royalty and handling everything else. So that's really where it began. That was kind of the first you know, phase of the pivot. And that was, I think, what gave us our first edge. Because everybody else, when they were doing the launch model and it was just them in, in the guru business, they were limited by the by the ideas between their two ears and the and kind of the energy you know within their arms and legs i did not have that constraint i didn't have that limitation i was able to come out with a lot more offers a lot faster than everyone else so i always had something new to talk about right and i say i it was a team effort but at the time digital marketer as a brand did not yet exist we still didn't have a brand or a company yet that was associated with anything we were doing i just knew that it couldn't just be me and if it was going to just be me, it wasn't going to last and it, it wasn't going to scale. So that was the first kind of pivot that we made. And then I realized that even that was too difficult. Even that was too fleeting. Every month having to come up with something new, every month starting off at zero. I was looking at what, what companies like Netflix was doing. You know, at the time, Netflix was beginning to pivot away from you know, kind of renting movies a la carte uh, over towards a subscription model. Uh, it just made sense. It made sense to me. It's like, why, you know, why should somebody have to buy each one of these things on the card? It seems to me like they should pay one flat fee that's a really great price and get access to everything. It'd be easier for me and it'd be a better deal for them. And so that's what we did. And I remember it wasn't until 2014 that I finally planted a flag and I said, we are not going to do any more high ticket product launches, period. We're not going to do any more high ticket product launches. We are going to push for subscription. 
And that is that. And I made that proclamation in January. And by May, we were just about broke. <laughs> it was, that was one of the hardest pivots, one of the hardest shifts that we've ever made. I mean, we almost ran out of money. It was a very difficult thing to make because, you know, it makes sense now. But when you shift the subscription, you know, you take the lifetime customer value and you Extended realize it. Five yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you realize it over a longer period of time. Now, what, what I now know for an absolute fact is that the LTV is higher, mm. right? The LTV is much higher. You do make more money than if you just charge, you know, you have somebody buy this $2,000 thing from you. And that seems hard to believe, but when you factor in, you know, refund rates and, you know, all the hassles around, you know, selling the really, really high ticket, only selling the high ticket to the people who aren't ready to buy the high ticket, that becomes an issue. But making that shift, you know, from the, the big ticket sale to the subscription was painful. It was very, very painful. And, and what's nice is I know now I'm not alone. Companies like, you know, Oracle and SAP, uh, they really weren't able to respond when Salesforce came in. And this whole SaaS movement emerged, right? It, it caught all these big, you know, massive companies flat-footed, and they couldn't respond because the, their economics were such that if they didn't get that big payday up front from that customer, they couldn't afford to exist. And that's why ultimately they lost. And um, fortunately, we were at a point, at, you know, as a company where we weren't yet that big. We could sustain you know, we, we could tighten our belts a little bit and, uh, and, 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 and make it work, but boy, it was tough. And I, I didn't, I didn't draw a paycheck for the bulk of, uh, of 2014. It was a tough, it was a tough year, uh, but ultimately it wound up being the right decision. What was the key to getting momentum on the, uh, on the membership? Because, and I'm, and I'm asking these questions at this point, really, uh, selfishly because I'm doing the exact same thing, ironically, for the same reasons. So you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm, I'm completely tired of doing the guru thing. Like, I, this yeah. is unsustainable. It's a treadmill you can never get off of and that never ends. And at the end of the day, you're building a business that you can't sell. So it's just a high paying job. It's great. You can make a lot of money, but, but there's no end to it. And so that's when I was like, I'm going to build self-made man. I'm going to build a lifestyle education company for ambitious men. And we built the platform over the course of the last two years, basically. Uh, and then launched this year in March, and I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm shining the light on all of the other smartest people that we know, right? And essentially letting them be the instructors. So that's the the same kind of plan that I have. But from a business model perspective, you know, our basic membership is $19 a month, $97 a year. You really can't acquire any significant amount of customers without going into the red at that point, right? So did you guys? Like, take us through your your acquisition process on making that transition. Is it you've got your free trial that goes through three or four upsells? What did you do? Yeah, so we were you know we were fortunate in that when we made that pivot, we still had our list, right? So we were able to you know to go out to our list and say, hey, we're changing things up. Instead of having to buy these things a la carte, we've now loaded them in one membership area, and that's literally what I did at first. That's lab now. Everything's been redone they all follow a, a particular formats, right? Whether it's an execution plan, that's this kind of step-by-step checklist style training mm-hmm. or an actual, you know, certification style training. Like they all have fall formats at, at the time. Literally all I did was take everything that I had for sale. I stuck it in one members area, slapped up a, you know, a login form and like, boom, there's lab. Right. It was pretty Bobo, but it worked. It was, it was, it was good. So what we were able to do at first was go out to our existing audience and say, look, here's this new thing, lab. And some people bought, and that was great. It wasn't enough. So I'd say the first thing that you need to do if you want to make that that transition is you really need to cut back on your fixed costs. I mean, you got to get your costs as low as possible because you got to know that when you do it, you're you're gonna, you know, your your income the next month is gonna go down. And so I'll tell you, I don't talk about it very often, but one of the first things that that we did before we made that that pivot is we looked at. We looked at all of our expenses, including payroll, and we said, what can we live without? And we had to let some people go. Mm. People that were, you know, were good people and you know, they hadn't done anything wrong. We just knew that we couldn't afford them as we made that transition. Able to find you know, jobs for some of them. And, and uh, some of them actually wound up coming back and, and working for us. Some of them shifted to other companies that we had. We were able to find a place for them in other companies. 
and some of them we just had to say bye. But uh, we knew then that that if we brought the same overhead that we had into this new model, we would maybe have sixty to ninety days of savings. Mm-hmm. And if we couldn't get it around then, that, that just wasn't enough time. So I think you got to feel pretty good about having you know minimum six months, and that's if you got a list. Ideally, twelve months. There's a reason when software companies go to raise money, you know, they're raising money twelve to twenty four months out in terms of burn rate, right? right? I think you got to approach it the same way or just get those expenses down as low as you possibly can, or you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. So that, that's the first thing and knowing, okay, how much time do we have? And at what point, you know, do we hit that break-even number? And you got to sprint to that break-even number, do anything that you can do, no matter how inefficient, unscalable it is to get those members in. Now, when we first did it, just going out and promoting the membership did not get us where we needed to be. And it freaked me out because I assumed that it would. Yeah, no, I had I had a similar experience. And I think I think selling a membership these days is tougher than it used to be because there's a lot a lot of them available, right? And I think that's exactly what we realized. The big secret to selling memberships is you don't sell membership. Mm-hmm. So we're out there trying to sell lab. We're we're basically trying to tell people, you need to sign up for this membership. And and I call you've seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Mm-hmm. His friend runs for student council president, you know, Pedro, mm-hmm. and his, his, uh, his slogan was vote, vote for Pedro and I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. That's kind of what we do with memberships, right? It's like join this membership and we'll make all your wildest dreams come true. There's no specificity whatsoever to anything. And that's, there's nothing for anybody to grab hold of. You know, they, they have to believe in, in the core premise, which is usually a very kind of high level thing, right? They have to believe that like, oh, I just need to be a better digital marketer and all aspects of digital marketing, which is only never how people approach a problem. What they say is, I don't know how to do Facebook ads. I need to figure out how to do Facebook ads. So for us, for me, it was a bit of, of frustration. I said, you know, we got to make some, we got to generate some revenue. We got to make some sales. So I'm going to take one of our better selling products and I'm just going to run a flash sale on that product just to generate some income. And I'll tell people, you know, who buy, oh, by the way, if you like this, there's a whole bunch more trainings like it. You could sign up for our membership then. We sold more people into our membership by offering that standalone a la carte product Mm -hmm. than we did direct selling the membership itself. In other words, moving the membership to second base and getting somebody to make that initial purchase, I I didn't do it because I thought it was going to be a great idea in terms of funnel. I did it because we just needed to generate some freaking revenue. Is this and, um, is this back going back to the days years ago when I think this is around the time frame you really went heavy on like the seven dollar you know quote unquote tripwire offer? That's exactly what happened, and 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 because it worked then, and truly it was like let's just do it, let's charge seven bucks, you know, hopefully we can sell you know five hundred of these things and and uh, you know and generate you know generate enough you know enough income to kind of get us through the next little bit, and we saw all of these people sign up for the membership. And so the key to selling membership is not selling membership. The key, if you want to sell membership, if you want to build your membership program is to upsell it after you've already solved a very specific want or need. So that's when, you know, now it became about, okay, what can we splinter off and sell separately? It, it didn't, you know, it got me back into the mode where I was having to come up with something new to sell all the time, but it became more formulaic. Right. Right. It became very, very, very formulaic. So now it's okay. What little chunk from the membership can I splinter off? Sell for $7. Say, by the way, if you like this thing for seven bucks, we got 20, 30 more things just like it. You could sign up today. It's just $40 a month. And that still wasn't enough at the time to cover our acquisition costs. So then we put in a profit maximizer on the end where you could get, you know, a really, really expensive course for $300. And between all of those things, the front end sale, the first month payment on uh, on the subscription and that profit maximizer, all those things were enough for us to be able to uh, acquire customers at break even or better. And when that happened, that's when we were able to ramp up advertising. That's when we were able to to really scale everything else. And that's when we very very quickly went from you know around fifteen hundred members to you know to to north of, of five thousand just by keeping that flywheel going. Right, right. Very cool. That's um. That's some great insight into the process because the economics today, especially now with the way things have shifted with Facebook ad costs over the last, let's say, 12 months, it's definitely changed the economics of just internet marketing in general. <laughs> um, oh, it has. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has. And, and I'll tell you, we've, we've now gone the opposite direction because what we found is 
once we got it to work, you know, we found that that the upsell take rate to our subscription, to our membership was beginning to taper off, right? It started off really strong and then other people started to model it. And, you know, anytime you scale, things get worse, right? You're going to start advertising. You're going to start your marketing in, in your inner circle, right? And then you're going to go a little bit wider and then a little bit wider. And every time you go out another concentric circle, the lead quality goes down. Like the traffic quality inherently, it's going to go down with scale. You're, you're always spending quality to buy scale. And so each time we scaled, it performed a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And so that's who made the decision. Hey, what if we switch from asking them to give us, you know, to buy this subscription today? What if we switch to a trial? And so we changed it up to a dollar trial. We've since changed it up from a dollar trial to a totally free trial. Now at Digital Marketer, we don't even have the third base upsell because we found that it's actually better to utilize that real estate to try to get somebody to ascend and upgrade immediately. So now instead of trying to sell them something different, the upsell is, you know, hey, what if we send you this, uh, you know, this book and a t-shirt and your new member welcome kit, if you go ahead and upgrade today, you know, and if you upgrade annual, then I'll send, then I'll sign the book, right? All of those things combined generate way less money on day one than we used to generate, but they generate far more members who stay a lot longer. So the name of the game is always, how do we reduce friction through the membership buying process? Like, how do we get that as, as low as possible without going broke? And now, fortunately, we're, you know, we're at a point where we can afford to wait four to six months for, these, you know, for the membership to ROI. In the early days, no freaking way. We'd have been broke before yeah. then. Yeah. So. Yeah. How, uh, what, would, what would you give people as a benchmark to shoot for? For their customer stick rate, right? Like average customer life, average customer lifetime on a monthly subscription. Traditionally, we ten years ago, six seven years ago, we would always just default to like three point five or four months. You know, I don't know what you guys would use today, but are you looking at twice that, three times that? What's a good reference point for people to shoot for? Yeah, so the that type of, of number that that's always difficult to calculate because. It's always changing, right? Yeah. In terms of how long do they stick? And, and yeah, I, I remember that. I still have no idea where those numbers even came from, <laughs> right? Three and a half, four months. It's something that we all just universally agreed to, and there was no reference to whatsoever, right? And, and I can tell you, if, if your average stick rate is only three to four months, that's, there's probably a problem there. So for us, what we look at is the metrics that we're really paying close attention to is we obviously want to know what's the conversion rate? Like how many people who purchase a front end offering? Because it's really what we do today is still the exact same thing that we did before. Mm -hmm. We are still out there selling, you know, doing $7 flash sales and execution plans, upselling into lab. We're doing $95 flash sales on certifications, upselling to lab plus. We have our one day live workshops that upsell into lab elite. The model has not changed and it just continues to work again and again and again. So we're obviously looking at you know, what's the front end conversion rate of, of that tripwire of that kind of entry point offer? Then what's the conversion rate of the people who purchase to the people who take a trial, right? So what's the trial take rate conversion rate? We really love for that to be north of 30%. In reality, 10 to 15% is what we see more times than not in the aggregate, okay? Because a lot of times, especially when you're going out to your house list on a lot of these things, they've seen these offers, mm -hmm. you know, they've, they've made a decision about it. So it's going to bring it down. But in the beginning, you know, 30 to 40% trial take rate is, you know, really would be a good solid target for it. Now we're going to say, okay, what percentage of the people who take a trial are going to roll over and actually become a full member and, and get billed at least once? Where we're targeting there is north of 60%. We have been as low as 30%, right? And that was when we realized, whoa, we need to shift our focus from trying to get, trying to generate more money from these people before they've even experienced anything with membership to trying to get them to upgrade and actually consume and get value. Activate, yeah. Yeah, let's get them actually activated. Let's not distract them with something else over here. So north of 60%, and, and if you can be north of 70%, you know, you're, you're going to be in, in really good shape. The, the numbers are, are, are likely going to work out. Then after they've been, after they have successfully rebuilt one time, we're going to say, what's our average monthly churn? So when we calculate churn, we are looking at churn of subscribers. So a lot of times when people are looking at what's your churn rate or what's the average stick, 
they're factoring in people who are in a trial and mm. never rolled over. Yeah. You've got to take those out. It's a, they're, they're not yet members. It's a fundamentally different kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, from a, from a monthly churn after somebody has, has been billed, we have been, you know, north of 10%. And I'll tell you, that's a problem. You know, if every single month you're losing more than, you know, 10% or more of your subscribers, then yeah, you're, you're looking at an average, you know, stick rate after trial. That's probably going to be, you know, really when it's all said and done six to seven months, if you're lucky, right. It could be, it could be even worse than that. We really target, we want to be sub 4% a month on the information side. That's, it's not easy to get there. I'll tell you, especially at scale, you're doing a lot of work on the merchant account side and, and you're doing a lot of work with uh, subscription updaters and, and, you know, different solutions to make sure. Because a lot of times, a lot of your churn is involuntary. Expiration it's not dates. people yeah. canceling. Yeah, it's, it's those kind of things. And so having a, having a merchant provider that has these credit card updater functionality, um, you know, Stripe has someone built in, Vantive, which is one that when you're doing kind of in excess of, of 10 million, you can get into prior to that, you know, it's harder, easypaydirect.com. And these are all just ones that we use. I'm obviously not, Yeah. I don't get any compensation. I'm just, you know, cause I know people are going to ask, okay, how do I do that? Uh, but easypaydirect.com, they, they've, they've got some good credit card updating functionality built into their merchant platform. So, you know, kind of between those, those three, that that's when you get to that, but you really want to be sub four and, and you think about it, you do the math when you're sub 4%, you know, you're, average stick rate in terms of how long are people going to stay it, it's eight nine ten twelve months and you hope that it gets out even even beyond that and then what you hope to do is introduce higher membership levels so that you actually get in a negative turn situation right you get in a situation where yeah there's some people leaving but you also have the people who are staying are, are ascending and if you factor in the net of the people leaving and the people ascending, there's actually, you know, you're getting more from the people who are staying than you're losing from the people who are leaving and you're adding more people to it. And that's when subscription gets into this amazing, wonderful, virtuous cycle and it begins to compound. Mm. It's hard to do. It's easier said than done, especially if you're selling a membership or a subscription. It's easier in SaaS. It's easier if you're selling a utility, you know, if you're selling somebody a CRM or something like that or hosting solution, if it's you know, if, if they're bolting an aspect of their company to you, you know, I mean, that, I think the average stick rate in um, lifetime value for uh, for Salesforce is like three and a half years or something crazy like that. Right. Right. But that's because they're just they're embedded inside of you. You know, you, they just injected their brand inside of yours. I mean, they're you're not going to get rid of them. No, the, the, the switching cost is massive. <laughs> so. yeah, it's it's yeah. so painful. But so those are the things I look at, right? Um, what, what's your trial take rate? What's your trial rollover percentage? And then once somebody has rolled over, what is your average monthly churn? And you want to do this from a cohort standpoint. So you want to say, what is it generally in the first month? What is it generally in the second month? What is it generally in the third month? After three months, that's when it kind of evens out. That's when it just is the same. You can have the biggest impact in those first three months. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's, uh, that's really, really good. I've always you know, looking at my churn rate, I've never taken out the initial trial cancellations and you're like, shit. And, and now that I'm working the numbers in my head, I'm like, actually we're, we're kicking ass. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you got it. Um, you got to get rid of it because you'll be, because what you'll be doing is you're not just getting rid of it to make yourself feel better. Sure. It's, they're two fundamentally different marketing problems, right? When somebody's in a trial, it's all about getting them to experience an aha moment, right? A wow moment. It's how do I get them, you know, engaged. And we know in, you know, in lab, that's getting them to go into our, our membership, ask a question and get an answer, right? Mm-hmm. If they go in the membership, if they ask a question, they get an answer. If we engage with them, they don't even have to consume a bit of content. We're going to get them from trial to paid at least one month. Now, once they're in that one month, we got to get them some results, right? But you're talking about two fundamentally different challenges. The first 30 days, that, that, that trial to full member, that's about the aha moment. Right. Right. You got to figure out what that is and everything needs to be about delivering that. After that point, it's about getting them that positive ROI on their investment. And how do you deliver on the promises that you made in a, in a meaningful and a substantial way so that they actually want to, you know, want to stick around. So given that you're doing two different things to impact those numbers, you have to look at those numbers separately, or you could be doing a great job and not even realize it. And you're trying to double down on something that you're actually, you're pretty good. 
you know, mm-hmm. you're pretty good at that. Like maybe once people are in and they actually start consuming, you know, for two or three months, they're loving life. It's great. And, and you're thinking, oh, I got to do, I got to deliver more. And really you're running up against just diminishing returns because you're losing all these trials. It's just a fundamentally different problem. Right, right. Very cool. I know we're, we're going to run out of time here really, really quickly. So I want to get, I want to get us back to essentially the next stage of y'all's development and progression, which was really the scaling side, right? So you've got the initial membership sales figured out. You know, at the end of the day, it then comes down to teams, processes, culture, all of that stuff, which is a completely different skill set. And so how did you handle that? Was it simply a matter of running into the right, let's say, COO or what did that look like? No, some of the worst things that I ever did was try to bring on uh, you know, executives to, to quote unquote, run the company. Mm. I will tell you, if, if you are the founder, run your, run your company, mm-hmm. all right? Be a parent, right? Do, do it. It's your job, right? That's your job. That's why you get paid the big bucks one day you know, if, if you pull it off. I see far too many entrepreneurs and far too many founders say, you know, I'm the creative one. I'm the product person. I don't want to get in on the business side. Too bad. Suck it up. Learn it. I didn't, I didn't have a business degree. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. But what I found is, found out time and time and time again, is me doing it poorly is better than a quote unquote business person coming in and doing it well, but doing all the other critical stuff poorly. My team would forgive me if I wasn't quite figuring out the culture side right? Or the team building side or the process management, you know, or any of the things that fall into the broader category of operations. I found that they would forgive me for that because they knew that I was in it with them, right? It was, it was my company and too, and I, I cared about it and I was trying. Um, but if I brought somebody else in, then people generally felt abandoned and that's when they were gone. I'm not saying there isn't a place for it, but I don't think that comes until you're well into them. I and if you're going to say, kind of the, that first stage of a company is finding product market fit, right? Seeing if it happens. And then you've got, you know, now what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to a predictable sales rhythm, right? Where, where, where things are, are rocking along. Then you get to a point when you're like now maybe at 50 something people, right? When you get north of 50 people, that's when you could perhaps bring in the professional management if, you know, if you want to. But I think if you do it prior than that, prior to that, it, it, it's, it's, it's not going to go well. I've never really seen it work well for me. I haven't seen it work well for others. So it definitely wasn't coming across the right person. It was coming across in the, you know, the right books and, and just doing it the wrong way and going back and try again. I mean, I remember I thought all the culture stuff was stupid. Uh, I thought that was something that big, dumb companies did. I remember after having a pretty big win, you know, we, you know, we succeeded. We hit a big milestone. Like we hit a big member milestone. We were really excited. I was excited. We were able to make payroll. Life was good. I was able to breathe a little bit. And somebody on the team came to me. It's like, why are we doing this? Like, what's our purpose? What's our mission? Truly, it's about more than this, right? We achieved this goal, but now what? And what I wanted to say is, screw you, we're doing this so that I can eat, you can eat too. <laughs> um, but I knew that wasn't the right reason, right? There has to be more than that. And, uh, and that's when Digital Marketer really found its mission of doubling the size of, of 10,000 businesses, right? And, and so, you know, we started from that. I, I remember having personnel issues, you know, people acting in ways that, uh, you know, that, that just, they weren't right. And I didn't know how to say, that's not how you're supposed to behave. You know, and like in, in my own home, at least I can point to the Ten Commandments in the Bible and be like, this is how we act here. I can't necessarily do that at work, right? So we created our own commandments in the form of our core values, right? So it came out of there. All of these things happened, you know, over time, but the information's there. You know, you read Good to Great by Jim Collins, it's all there. You know, the idea of a BHAG and, you know, core values, you know, it, it's all there. And so, Generally, I was fortunate to find the right books at the right time. I will tell you, don't overcomplicate this when you are growing your company. There are three chunks to every business. There's the product side, there's the revenue side, and there's the operation side. And most founders are going to start out either on the product side or on the revenue side. So you're either going to be the product person who comes up with the idea or you're going to be the product person who kind of comes up with a idea, but you know, or, or you have somebody else who comes up with it, but you're, you're way more on the revenue on the sales and marketing side. Know the area where you're going to live. Okay. That is your job. But as a, as a founder, as someone who's starting something, you have one of those two jobs. You're going to need some help on the operation side, but that can usually be done with, you know, good accountants, good bookkeepers, 
maybe an office manager. That can be done in the beginning with, with lower level folks. So you don't have high level problems yet. Like get help in the area where you need help. So I'm more of a sales and marketing, more of a revenue person. I knew that if digital marketer was going to scale, we were going to need product help. And so I looked everywhere and I searched far and wide to find a great product person. And I found him in Russ Hineberry. And Russ came on board and I said, Russ, I, I need you to make lab great. I need, uh, you know, I, I need lab. It's kind of the smattering of information. I, I need stuff distilled down into, you know, step-by-step checklists. I just need you to go in and, and make it happen. And he did, mm-hmm. right? What I found that most founder, founders try to do is they want to find someone like them. They want to find somebody who can do it all. They want to find somebody who can, you know, be their boss so they can just do their one thing. Uh-uh. You are in charge. You are the leader. Do not abdicate an ounce of responsibility for this. That's a coward's way out. All right. You are the leader. Find somebody to do the thing in one of those two categories. So I'm making it really simple for you. It's a binary choice. You either need some help in sales and marketing, or you need some help in product if you're the, if you're the person actually building you know, and doing the product. But go out there and get somebody to do that. Usually, you're not talking about paying these people. You know, a, a great one in either one of those areas coming in at a company is going to probably make six figures, but they're not going to make multi-six figures. Mm-hmm. Um, give them an upside. You don't have to make them partner or anything like that. Not yet. And, and save the operation stuff and the business management until the business you know, becomes a, a city. Mm, very cool. That's, uh, I love how simple you've distilled that down into just, hey, three things. You fill one, find the other two. You know, that's all you yep. got to do. Well, and, and one of those two, one of those three, the ops one can wait. Fill mm. that with an office manager and a good bookkeeper. Right, right, right. You know? Super helpful, super helpful. When it comes to maybe some of the bigger mistakes that you guys have made along this path, what would you say were the biggest? Most of them are going to fall in the categories of either poor cash flow management or allowing the wrong person to linger in the wrong role for too long. Mm. I can tell you that that almost everything that we've done is we knew that somebody wasn't a fit, but they were a really, really, really good person, and we just let them sit there and fail, and we let other people tolerate. Uh, we let other people watch us tolerate their in, their inadequacies, and so we lost some good people as a result of tolerating people who weren't a fit. And at the end of the day, when we parted ways, everything was better, and they were fine. And so, just recognizing that. You know, sometimes things just don't work out with good people, and and uh, and it doesn't mean you have to be mean about it, and it doesn't mean you have to be cutthroat. You know, go to them and say, "Hey, these are the expectations; they're not really being met. Is it us or is it you? If it's us, talk to us. What can we change? If it's not us and it and it's you, then we really need to see this improved, or you can't work here." I've unfortunately had to let go, let a lot of people go in my career. Mm-hmm. It has been a long time since any of them were surprised. You know, right. and, and usually they come to us and, and, and somebody on my team who's following the process the right way and they, they opt out of the process. But I'd say letting those people hang on too long, it's mean to your company and it's utterly cruel to them. But also do just bad cash flow management, right? Not being clear on how much money do we have in the bank? How much can we afford to spend in different areas? <laughs> you know, I almost went broke because I forgot to pay taxes. It's stupid stuff like that. It's the stupid things that bring down smart entrepreneurs because smart entrepreneurs don't focus on that. They focus on the things that quote unquote matter, but you got to look at your cash every single day. If you're not logging into your bank account and looking at your cash every single day, you have no idea what the pulse is of your business every single day. Now, when you, when you say log in your bank account, I'm assuming you mean, let's say your company's QuickBooks account or something like that. I mean, log into your bank account because I cannot tell you how many times stuff hasn't come into QuickBooks quite right or things have been wrong. The cash money that is in your account does not lie. Now, when you get to a certain point that your business has grown and you have professional bookkeepers and those types of folks on site, I no longer log into my bank account, bank account every single day. I now receive a report in my inbox because I don't want to have to log into QuickBooks, but I receive a cash report for every single one of my companies. I receive a daily sales report. So how are my companies doing revenue-wise as it compares to goal? And I see a cash report. And I, I can tell how is that changing and where is cash year over year. So I'm looking at revenue year over year to goal and I'm looking, looking at cash year over year. And then at least once a week, I do log into the bank account and I check with my own eyes to make sure the money's there. I've been stolen from. I have done stupid things where you know, we didn't realize that money was going, getting deposited in the wrong area and we thought stuff was broken and it wasn't. It was just hiding. Dumb things happen with money. And, and that's your money. 
like go go look at it talk to it you know <laughs> that it's important you you know you're in a relationship with that with that money that's your blood yeah i think it's fine to check daily in your bank account last question in the final minutes that we have what is your take on the differences these days between email and social media I think they couldn't possibly be more different. I think they're just wholly, they're fundamentally different, different media, every bit as different as, you know, as, as radio is from, is from print and, and just, you know, general face-to-face conversation, you know, would be from, uh, you know, from, from a, from a telephone. Um, I think they serve different purposes. So uh, I think social is, is really, if, so look, if we look at social in two ways, social, as an organic channel. So we're, we're using social media for the purposes that, that it was intended for as a user. I think it is really great for continuing to engage and interact with the audience you already have. Organically, social, it, it, it's, there's just too much noise. You're, you're unlikely in social to break through from an acquisition standpoint, unless you're doing something very, very, very special, because there just aren't a lot of, again, inefficiencies there. I mean, if you're trying to break through in, in Facebook, now, good luck. Nobody's going to see it. Right. There, there are some inefficiencies and opportunities in Instagram, but boy, you better be doing some really cool stuff visually because you're competing against the Kardashian. Again, good luck. LinkedIn, right now, if you're in B2B, LinkedIn is probably the best organic opportunity out there that I'm seeing, but even it is very, very, very difficult. Now, social from an advertiser perspective, so not the user, but from an advertiser perspective, is one of the most phenomenal ways to acquire because that's, that is the media du jour. Right, that is the new radio. That is the new TV. But I would not confuse doing social as an advertiser and doing social as a user, meaning from the organic side. They're two fundamentally different activities, different cadences, different skill sets that are required. Everything. Email is is all about communication. Email has shifted into a broadcast media, so we use email to tell a whole lot of people the exact same thing at the same time. What I'm seeing, funny enough, is email getting a bit more social again. Uh, so more times than not, you know, now we're sending emails designed to get people to respond so we can start a conversation with humans uh, on our end, mm-hmm. as opposed to sending email to get somebody to click. We're sending emails to get people to respond so that people, you know, on our customer care team and, and our sales team can can talk to them and 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 maybe ascend them. And I think that's kind of that's the future of retail. I'm seeing the same thing with chat, right? So you look at chat apps like you know Drift yeah. uh, and Intercom. You look at Facebook Messenger apps like ManyChat. And mobile monkey and how many of them are bot enabled. This is all just shifting things back into more of a conversational, you know, type marketing. And that's a big trend that I would encourage everybody to keep an eye on. That that's really I do see marketing getting more conversational. There are more jobs being lost in retail than just about any other sector. I believe in the next five to ten years they're all going to get rehired, fundamentally working retail, doing chat operations via these different chat apps and things like that in in uh, small businesses. So yeah, um, very interesting. Very interesting. I've been trying to tell you know our audience the same thing for years now. Which for me, uh, you know, social media and the podcast is specifically the podcast is how I deliver content on a weekly basis to my existing audience. It's not what I use to grow an audience. And socials, you know, basically the same way. It's allowing people to see a more personalized, you know, window into your life and to build that rapport, but. You know, as far as business is concerned, it's done via email. Um, yeah, and, and I would totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been awesome, brother. It went by super, super fast. Where can people go to connect with you? Obviously, they can go to digitalmarketer.com dot com and uh, and check out a free trial of Lab. But you guys have some future projects coming out. What do you want people to know about? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, definitely digitalmarketer.com. dot com. Got a good blog there. We also have podcasted. You know, we have the Digital Marketer Podcast. We have the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. A project that I'm really, really, really excited about that isn't yet live, but, uh, but maybe by the time this goes live is, um, is in the uh, corporate learning area. So in, in the learning and process management, the systems, the documentation side of things that I had to geek out on, we're actually you know, building a platform uh, to facilitate that because I think everything has shifted back to a model of you know, on-the-job training. We're shifting back into a, an apprenticeship-type mode because mm. colleges and universities, they're not training people for the, the work that I need done today. They're probably not the same you know, for you, right? So you want good, talented people. You kind of need to hire sharp folks, train them up, give them the systems and documentation so they've got an environment to succeed. We're looking to build a, build a platform and eventually a community to, uh, to really drive that. And that's at um, praxio.com, so P-R-A. 
xio.com. That's kind of the next big project that I'm, I'm super, super excited about. That was birthed out of some of our efforts at, uh, at Digital Marketer. So totally unrelated to some of the stuff we were talking about. But, but uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm going to be spending a lot of my time and investing a lot of my um, kind of mental energy and a lot of my content marketing efforts is going to be on that whole idea, right? How do we train people to do stuff that, that the university model is failing on? Yeah, no, it's it's critical because that's, you know, so much of our world traditionally is focused on customer acquisition and revenue, but nobody really ever talks about how to actually scale the business. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, yeah. it's going to happen through people. You know, yeah. I love software. Software helps, but it is still going to be people. I think the I think the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the future of, 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 of the uh, world workforce is going to be strong because, uh, boy, we, we still need people, you know, pulling levers and doing different things and they're going to need to be trained. I think those who invest in their people and who invest in making them better, they're going to be the companies that win in the future. Yeah, awesome. Couldn't agree more. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for the time. This has been amazing. I uh, appreciate it immensely. And thank you, as always, to everybody who is listening. I appreciate your support. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Strike.